If you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, I'll be reading from the fourth chapter, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were there with him. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Tired Jesus, sleeping Jesus, head on a pillow. That's not really the image of Jesus we have in our minds most of the time. No, most of the time we think of Jesus with little children sitting in his lap or praying in the garden or rising in glory up through the clouds or, in the case of this particular story, Jesus on the bow of the boat, arms outstretched, sort of Jack and Rose on the Titanic style, (laughs) bossing around the wind and the waves. This is the image of powerful Jesus in control Jesus. Not anything like what is actually described in the text. He said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side, and leaving the crowd behind, they took him, now listen to this, just as he was. They took him just as he was. What does that mean? It sort of implies that Jesus was in rough shape, just as he was, no shower, no shave, ragged. Just as he was, they took him, bedraggled Jesus, no change of clothes, a Jesus that was so tired he fell asleep before they could pull up the anchor. It's weird to think that Jesus was so tired, right? I mean, we don't think of Jesus as tired. And besides, how can he really be that tired? I mean, preachers only work one day a week. It's not like he's coming off a 12-hour shift at the hospital or spent all day on a roof replacing shingles in the Oklahoma heat. He's been teaching and preaching and healing, and what's so tiring about that? Well, this is a church of volunteers, as you know. I don't need to explain to you what is so exhausting about helping people, offering them a hot lunch on Saturday, praying at high noon outside an ICE office, preparing the church to hold a grieving family, sorting clothes and donations for 363, teaching Sunday school in a room filled with kiddos who have just been stuffed with sugar-coated donuts. And then there are the three most exhausting words in all of Christendom, Vacation Bible School. (laughs) So yeah, church volunteers know that kind of fatigue. It is maybe not so hard to understand the kind of tired Jesus was when he got on that boat after a day of ministry after all. 
You know the rest of the story. Jesus finds a bunk at the bottom of the boat and goes to sleep. A big storm comes up and the disciples lose their minds. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. It is chaos. Nothing is secure. The disciples are hanging on for dear life, hoping against hope that they can keep it together until the storm breaks. Except Jesus. Exhausted Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat, apparently oblivious to the crisis. It is no wonder the disciples are a little annoyed at having to wake him up. Even after all these years, we can hear the frustration in their words, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This was the question followers of Jesus were asking when Mark wrote his gospel. These people were in the middle of a storm. Mark wrote his gospel at a time when destruction of the temple was at hand. The chaos of this story is Rome's seemingly irresistible power. There was no safe footing, no place to hold, no place to hide, because everything was caught up in Rome's driving wind and angry waves. Even the temple, the house of prayer, the holy place where God's presence was most palpable, the last foothold of refuge in times of distress, it was imperiled by the storm. In that storm, God's people were panicking, holding on for dear life. Except Jesus, Mark reminds them, Jesus is able to command even the wind and the waves and can even calm Rome's fury. The church did a strange thing with this story. It, it, turned, a, it turned political theology into a miracle story in which the most important thing is Jesus' power over the natural world. Other stories make it easy to do this. After all, there are stories of Jesus turning water into wine, raising people from the dead, feeding crowds of over 5,000 people, and now we are to believe that Jesus has the power to control the weather. It is one of the ways Jesus became God, so to speak. Jesus' command over the water mirrored God's command over nature, as in Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifts up the waves. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Or from the prophet Isaiah, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? Jesus as God, swooping in to save the day, makes for a very good story. And in some ways, it is the safest way for us to interpret it. After all, if this is just a story to make us believe in magic Jesus, we're off the hook. It's often used as another example that we can't really do anything but trust Jesus to do his divine thing that our job is to pray hard enough that Jesus wakes up in time to save us. We all know churches who prefer it that way. But taken only literally, we miss what good storytelling this is. For the ancients, bodies of water were a mystery representing both life and great risk. Back then, everybody knew somebody who set out to sail one day and never came home. 
Everybody knew the deadly potential of a sudden wind or a heat storm. Everybody lived with the risks of such dangers because the waters held food and work. It is no wonder that one of the most vivid images of chaos in ancient literature is a storm at sea. In a sea storm, everything is in flux. The ground beneath one's feet is moving. The mast to which one might cling is also moving. The stern in which to hide is moving. And in the fury of the storm, the boat itself groans and strains, threatening to tear apart. There was also the mythology of the great sea monsters, rooted no doubt in sightings of large sea creatures along the way. It gained its greatest compelling power by what one could not see. These people did not need Shark Week to appreciate the creatures that lived in the depths. This mythology supplied an explanation for the terrifying dis disappearances of entire ships along with the souls on board, either completely gone or washed up in pieces, but never enough pieces to put anything back together. This story was effective then, and it has stood the test of time. Of this passage, Reverend Caroline Lewis says, there is no end to sermons on this story that allegorize the boat, and for that matter, everything else in this sea passage tale, and we all know how those sermons go. What are the storms that are tossing your life around? How many times does it feel like you are in a storm and Jesus is asleep? Jesus is in the boat with you. Have you asked Jesus for help? None of this is necessarily bad. It's just that the boat becomes a metaphor for all kinds of things rather than simply what it is a traveling vessel, a means by which to get from one place to another. I mean, maybe the boat is just a boat. Maybe the point is that Jesus is trying to get us to the other side, right? I mean, remember the beginning of the story. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Back to tired Jesus. I mean, why didn't he just go home? Why didn't Jesus head back into town to get that shower and a good night's sleep? I mean, then we wouldn't have that just as he was part. But instead of finding a place to rest, he suggests going into unfamiliar territory. Let us go across to the other side. The other side into Gentile territory, which is not exactly where Jesus and the disciples are supposed to be. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is never where he's supposed to be. He travels to socio-political borderlands like Samaria, even though Jews do not hang out with Samaritans. He eats in the home of tax collectors and touches lepers, even though everyone knows you shouldn't do that. And with this story, we have what sounds like a bad preacher joke. Why did Jesus cross the road? <laughs> to get to the other side. It turns out, though, it's not really a punchline. It's a theological imperative. You see, 
On the other side, there was a demon-possessed man, another human who had been pushed outside of community. That's the next story, Mark 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the lake, they came to the other side of the lake, and when he stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Can you imagine if Jesus had asked the disciples beforehand, I mean, hey guys, you want to go? I mean, they might have asked what was over there. Oh, you want us to go meet up with a demon-possessed man who lives in a cemetery. And then you're going to send those demons into a herd of 2,000 pigs. And then the pigs are going to jump into the lake. No thanks, Jesus. And who can blame them? Left on our own, we'd rather stay put, stay in our comfort zone, stick with our own theologies and ideologies. Our side is just fine, thank you very much. Good thing for the demon-possessed man, Jesus didn't ask the disciples. He just said, let us go to the other side. So they got in the boat. And that is what is required of us. We have to get in the boat. We've done it before. Last November, we took a vote on joining the sanctuary movement. We could have stayed nice and safe, dry on this side of the lake, comfortably ignorant of what was happening on the other side. To be sure, we experienced a squall or two, but we did it. And last week, when people were looking for a way to speak against the injustice at the border, they had a place to land at the prayer vigil we've been holding for the last 20 weeks. That's the other side. And you know, there's something else that I, I think that is true in this story, and that is Jesus really is in the boat with us. Not in a magic Jesus kind of way, but in a way that really will see us through. Just like in this story, Jesus' words are more powerful than whatever storms are raging. Jesus' words, you know them. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the peacemakers, visit those in prison, care for the sick. Let the little children come unto me. Ask for forgiveness. Offer forgiveness. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give without expecting anything in return. Show mercy. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And one of my favorites, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know of no injustice, no struggle, no storm that cannot be stilled by these words. So what do you say, church? All aboard?